everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Just who do you think you are, anyways? How would you describe yourself? How would you introduce yourself? How do you um, perceive yourself? Um, You hear all the time about self-esteem, self-image, self-awareness. I think the the language of, of the Bible is closer to that of identity. What's your identity? Just who do you think you are? It's the question I want to keep coming back to in the next several weeks as we study this this letter, this book of Ephesians together. And I'd I'd like to challenge us all, myself included, everybody, uh, in this room together over the next couple of months. There's a reading plan in your bulletin, and it's easy, bite-sized chunks of, of Scripture and it allows you to read it slowly and, and thoughtfully and prayerfully and to, to ask yourself, what did this mean to that context 2,000 years ago? What does it mean to me in 2020? Um, I think something really special could happen if all of y'all would read Ephesians together, um, prepare your hearts, prepare your mind, prepare your questions as we come in to these weekly teachings. So I unapolog- unapologetically want to challenge us all to do that. And ironically, in this first message on Ephesians, I'm actually not even going to refer to Ephesians at all. Uh, I just want to dig into this vital question. Uh, I feel it's that important. How would you answer the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? It's an important question. Maybe it's the important question. So fill in the blank. Instead of the name tag, You've got the um, identity tag. Hello, my name is blank. What? I'm rich, poor, uh, I'm young, I'm old, I'm a mother, I'm single, I'm a father, I'm married, I'm divorced, I'm successful, I'm a failure, I'm straight, I'm gay, I'm a Canadian, I'm conservative, I'm liberal. How do you define yourself? How do you see yourself? It's a vital question because, listen, your identity affects your destiny. Okay? It's a question that we all ask ourselves, sometimes even subconsciously, I suppose. Sometimes other tr- others try to answer that question for you, right? It starts when you're little. It starts when you're a baby. Uh, were you the middle child? Were you the funny kid? Were you the athletic kid? Were you the artsy kid? Were you the nerdy kid? What nicknames did you have? What nicknames were given to you? Did your parents have a nickname for you? Was it a good name? Was it uh, a cruel name? How did they see you? And how did it affect how you saw yourself? And then you hit junior high, and you have no idea who you are. And then you hit high school, and you start trying on identities like you try on sweaters. This isn't my uh, theory, by the way. This is, this is classic child theorists who have identified you know, the stages of man, and, uh, and one of which being teens and young adults who are searching for identity, and they, they try on different personas, don't they? Like, 
for those raised in the 80s like me, it's the, it's the breakfast club phenomenon, okay? You're literally figuring out, am I the geek? Am I the jock? Am I the princess? Am I the basket case? Am I the rebel? And then you hit college, and all of a sudden, you've got this opportunity to kind of completely reinvent yourself again, right? You're away from your family and your friends and your church and your community, and you get to start fresh, and you go ask yourself, am I the party person? Am I the 4.0 GPA person? Do I believe everything that I was raised with? And then you graduate, and there's a new identity crisis. Now you're supposed to be an adult. Now you're supposed to be prepared. But, you know, will I get a job? Will I make enough money? Um, What will I drive? Will I be single forever? And then perhaps one day you actually settle into a career, and it consumes your identity. Well, now I know who I am. I'm a businessman. I'm a teacher. I teach people. I'm a builder. I build things. That's my identity. And then maybe you get married, and all of a sudden your identity gets very conflicted. You thought you were going to marry you to help you become everything you want to be. And they were thinking the same thing about them. And suddenly two selfish people with separate identities collide into misery. We call that marriage. No. And sometimes for women, it's particularly difficult. I want, I want to be a mom. I want to have a career. I, I have these expectations at home that are placed upon me, and there's not enough hours in the week. How can I do it all? And then you have children. Ugh. And all of a sudden, your identity totally changes, right? There's this weight of responsibility on you that changes everything. All of a sudden, the child becomes the center around which the family orbits. The kids determine when you eat and when you sleep, if you do at all, and how money is spent and how vacations are planned and how life is organized. And all of a sudden, your hobbies, your friendships, your free time, the things that defined who you were, they're gone or they're altered in a very dramatic way. But your kids get older, and all of a sudden, they don't need you like they used to. They're starting to move away from home, and you hit uh, what they call an empty nest season, and suddenly your identity is shaken again. Well, if we don't have kids, who are we? What's the center of our world? What's the point now? Our kids, we're kind of keeping the marriage together. Uh, That's why we made money or went to church, and now they're gone. And sometimes then it crashes, divorce, midlife crisis. Maybe you're widowed, you're alone, your your children have grown up and they've moved away. Your identity is in a bit of a crisis. You ever felt like that? I have. So how would you answer the question, I am blank? Well, let's ask a different question. Let's begin with, who does God say you are. And here's what we see in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Genesis means beginnings, right? It's the first book of the Bible because it's a book of beginnings. And there we find, you know, the beginning of everything except for God because, of course, he's the uncaused first cause. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's the alpha and the omega. And here's what the Bible says. God said, let us There's an allusion right there to the Trinity, one God, three persons. 
Let us make human beings in our image or likeness, to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. So who are you? Well, God says, I've made you in my likeness, the imago Dei, the, the image of God. That's your identity. And that's good news because now you don't have to decide or determine what your identity is because God has already chosen to reveal it to you. Whether you agree with it uh, or believe it, that's kind of on you. But here's what God says about you, that you are created in my likeness. You are created in the very image of God. Wow. Can I tell you this? Um, some say we're nothing more than highly evolved animals. We're just sort of lucky animals with opposable thumbs. Um, the life of a raccoon is sort of equal to the life of a human. And if you think I'm exaggerating, you're not reading some of the literature that is out there with certain groups. You're not an animal, okay? You have dominion over them as God's image bearer. You also are not God. You are a created being. But you're here because of his divine design. You are created in his image. So because we are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, it means part of our identity is actually representing God or mirroring God. God says he wants his attributes to be you know, visible on the earth. He wants creation to know a little something about him. And so he's made us as his reflection. We're made to mirror God. And so God is loving. And when we love, we, we reflect a little bit of his love. God is truthful. So when we tell the truth, we're reflecting his truthfulness. God is forgiving. When we forgive others, we're reflecting a bit of the mercy and forgiveness and grace to others. The goal is not for the world to know us, right? But for the, the goal is for the world to know him. And so many of our identity decisions are, are about like, how's this going to make me look? And that's the wrong question. How will they see God through this? That's the right question. So that's why Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's, he's, he's the perfect mirror. He's the sinless mirror. Everything that could be seen about God's character is actually made visible through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. And then look at what it says in, in Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them. He blessed them. At this point, Adam and Eve haven't actually done anything. He just blessed them. They didn't earn it. It, it wouldn't be grace, I suppose, if they, if they thought they could earn it. God just blessed them. Our God is a God who begins with blessing. Our God is a God who actually likes to bless you. He likes it. Part of our identity is being a blessed people. But here's the thing. Why have we been blessed? To be a blessing to others. We image God. And notice this. You notice your identity is received. It's not achieved. 
Your identity comes from God. It's not something that you can do or earn. Adam and Eve didn't do anything to earn their identity. God made them. God loves them. God defined them. God blessed them. It's all God. Your identity is not achieved. It is received. It's not something you do. It's something God has done. It's not something you earn. It's what he gives. You need to know that because it frees you up from this performance trap, right? It frees you up from this competitive trap. It frees you up from a jealousy trap and a comparison trap that marks our culture. It lets you be who God made you to be and, and be able to rejoice in who God made you to be. So that means you are not more valuable than anyone else. It also means you are not less valuable than anyone else. All people equally bear the image and likeness of God, male, female, black, white, old, young, rich, poor, born, unborn, healthy, sick. It's why as Christians, we are the only religion actually to have a consistent worldview that believes in the dignity and the equality of all people. One of the great lies is that um, some people are more valuable than other people. Maybe we wouldn't say it that way, but that's what comes across. Let me say this. Your net worth has nothing to do with your self-worth, okay? It's why we don't believe in the survival of the fittest, that those who are strong survive and that those who are weak are worth less. It's why we don't believe in racism and classism and sexism, all the isms, because all equally bear the image of God. These are profound implications for not only how we see God, but how we see ourselves. So now that we know how God sees us, or at least a small portion found in Genesis, let's compare and contrast to how Satan sees us or how, what he tells you you are. What we see in Genesis 1 is that God tells us who he is and who we are. And then in Genesis 3, Satan tells us who he thinks God is and who he thinks we are. If you're visiting today, um, you're going to think maybe this is quaint or silly or unscientific. At NAC, we believe in Satan. We believe in demons. If you don't, it becomes really hard to explain the world, all the evil, all the injustice, all the tyranny, all the abuse, all the lies, all the darkness, if there's not a personal evil behind it. And the Bible says repeatedly that Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a killer. His intention is to, is to ruin you and harm you. And Satan is communicating with you. The question is, will you believe him? See, here, here's the power of a lie. It, it doesn't actually need to be true to destroy you. That's the power of a lie. If I told it you right now, if I, if I pointed somebody out and said, you know, everybody in this room kind of hates you. <laughs> it's not true, but if you believe it, it's going to change everything about how you relate to these people. So the power of the lie is ultimately contingent upon whether you believe it or not. And that's why Jesus says elsewhere, they'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Um, so Satan is responsible for the lie. But listen, you and I are responsible for our belief in the lie. So here's what Satan says to the first couple in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? See, Adam is silent. He's passive. He's a coward. His is a sin of omission. Eve's is a sin of commission. She engages in a conversation she shouldn't have. She acts out on a dare she shouldn't have. Both of them believe a lie that they shouldn't have. But know this, Satan is always going to question the clarity, the authority uh, of the word of God. Um, Whatever destruction he has intended for your life, it's going to begin with trying to erode your confidence in the truthfulness and the helpfulness of God's inspired word. So here's what Satan says in Genesis 3, 5. Um, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, So Satan shows up and says, Adam and Eve, I have a way for you to be like God. Well, do you see what's going on here? What did God just say in Genesis 1? He says, let's make humans in our image and likeness to be like us. And Satan comes along and says, here's a way for you to be like God. God says, I already made you like me. So God already told them their identity. You bear my image. You are made in my likeness. And Satan erodes their confidence in that promise. And he lies to them. And he says, there's a way for you to be in the likeness of God. Well, the essence of the lie that led to the original sin, which has infected and affected everything since, was rooted in this issue of identity. You know, Adam and Eve should have opened their mouth and said, hey, dummy, God already made us in his likeness. Our identity is received from God. It's not achieved by us. We already are blessed. We are already like God. And so Satan is going to lie to you. He just is. He's going to lie to you. He's going to tell you that in some way your identity can be achieved by you, instead of being received by God. And what we're talking about here is, is naming. Naming is, is a very, has a very powerful history in Scripture. God names people, and their, their name establishes a new sort of trajectory in their life. Um, Saul becomes Paul, you know. Um, that's why every week in this series... We're going to use this metaphor and give you a sticker. It says, hello, my name is blank. Um, And we want God to reveal from his book of Ephesians what he has called you, what your identity is. But Satan wants to name you too, you know, name you in such a way that's going to discourage you and make you hopeless and ultimately bring death. In Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of the children of God. He's a deceiver, the Bible says elsewhere. He's, he's going to try to name you, and he wants your name to become your identity. Look, I know in my own life, in my own family, at my own church, at NAC, the people who do the most damage to themselves, it's, it's often rooted in a false understanding of their identity. And it's because somewhere... Uh, the enemy has come along 
and has whispered in their ear and told them that they are something that they're not, and they accept that lie about their identity, and often they live out of that lie, even to their own destruction. So now, here's the other side of that coin. It's no less destructive. It's no less a tactic of the devil. But we'll call it identity idolatry. It's when we make some facet of our identity into the ultimate, right? We tend to think of idolatry as, you know, like shrines and pagan places and weird cults. But listen, before idolatry exists out there, it always exists in here, right? Here's what Ezekiel 14 says. They brought their idols into their heart. You know, the problem is not out there. The problem is always in here. So idolatry is usually taking a good thing and making it a God thing. It's, it's, it's when, we, it's when uh, we take a created thing and put it in the creator's place. Idolatry is when we live for something or someone other than Jesus. It's when we find our identity, our hope, our joy, uh, who we want to be, who we want others to perceive us to be as something that is achieved by us and not received from God. So there's many ways that people categorize themselves, you know? Your identity is successful business person or uh, the helper, right? Or the popular one or the good sibling or the parent. And then watch out when those kids leave and you're left trying to figure out who am I? Some people confuse their sexuality with their identity as though your identity was simply gay or straight. Some people confuse their identity as the musician or the athlete or the funny one or the hot one or the pastor or the hot pastor. (laughs) I am tired of that label, guys. Look, maybe this is, um, I didn't think it would be that funny, and yet kind of it hurts my feelings a little bit. Um, you know, when two guys meet each other at a, at a party, what is the first question out of their mouth? What do you do? And I'm trying, I'm trying to think of more creative questions. I still find I default to this, because what I do is not my identity, Okay. Idolatry is what happens when there is an inversion. Instead of our joy, our hope, our meaning, our identity coming from the creator, we find our identity in the created things that God has made, like, like the environment or pets or health or, or uh, beauty or vocation or things that we have made like a house or a car or a grade point average or a resume. And we live for, we're devoted to, we, are, we give our life to something that was created rather than the creator. Here's what uh, Romans says. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Now, I'm just going to quickly unpack some different categories of identity idols. And let me just say in advance, you are going to get defensive. I got defensive just 
thinking about it, okay? And let me say why. Because people violently defend their idols, okay? Paul goes into a town. He starts preaching against the idols. They try to kill him because people uh, violently want to defend their idols. But listen, here's the thing about idols. They make promises that they can't keep. They, they, and, you know, even if, you're, if your identity idol is, quote, working for you right now, um, it won't forever. You need an identity that is eternal because you are. So um, what are some of the identity idols we have? Well, I, items. You're going to see that I may have shoehorned in some wording to make the acronym work, but hear me out. These are, these are the things we own. I mean, is there any debate that consumerism is now a religion and stores are now temples? Like right now, there are people walking through Upper Canada Mall trying to figure out what their identity is. You know, what will I wear? What will the couch be at my house? How will this purchase reflect on me as a person? They are purchasing an identity. What kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is where sociologists are going to speak of. Um, thank you, darling. <clears throat> I don't call anybody darling, by the way. Uh, that's my wife, Vicky. And <clears throat> yes. Oh, please give her uh, a hand for. Um, conspicuous consumption, sociologists call it. It means that you you buy something not because you need it but because it establishes an identity for you as a person, like a car. Like, will I buy the Prius because I want to you know, look good for the environment? Will I drive a truck because I'm a man? Will I drive a SUV because I'm a man with a family, but I'm afraid what a minivan might say about me? <laughs> because your car, it's not just transportation, right? It's, a, it's part of your identity. And clothes, what do they say about me? Do they enhance my brand? When did famous people start talking about themselves as a brand, by the way? Isn't that just, doesn't that just sum up sort of the height of consumerism as, as idolatry? When people come into my house and they wash their hands and then they dry them on the towel, will they know that this cotton fiber count on the, uh, the towel, is it, will they know that it's Egyptian? What does this towel say about me as a human being, you know? Not to mention where I live and and do I own or I rent? And, and folks, even in this sort of hashtag woke anti-consumerism culture pushback, that can become an identity idol as well. Well, I only shop at thrift stores and uh, I don't even own a TV. You know, I just watch 30 hours of Netflix on my laptop. But, and I only eat locally sourced produce and organic meats and sustainable farming and everything in my house is biodegradable and <clears throat> these are good things but some of us make them into god things and we make it our identity d duties how about um the things that we do defining us i'm a student i'm a firstborn i'm the responsible child i'm a lawyer i'm a doctor i'm a truck driver i'm a mom i'm a dad i'm an elder I'm a small group leader. I'm needed. Again, uh, it's not that what you're doing is wrong. It could be that you're doing the right thing with the wrong heart, right? 
It's not to show the world your glory, but to show the world the glory of God. Here's the truth. Listen to this. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Who you are determines what you do. Because, see, the whole health, uh, self-help movement is this. Do these things to change your life. Lie. Come to Jesus. Be born again. And then who you are determines what you do. Oh, others. Okay, right now we're going to proceed into full-blown meddling. Okay, I think this is maybe one of the most common identity idols, if not the most common. This can be individuals or groups, you know? What does my tribe think of me? Uh, Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man is a trap. Uh, I want them to like me. I want them to approve of me. I want them to never leave me, never forsake me. I want them to say, you're one of us. You know, in your life, let me ask you this, whose words are far too powerful? If they praise you, you know, your life is worth living. If they criticize you, you know, you want to put a gun in your mouth. Um, in the age of social media, this is more intense than ever. Social media really is about creating an identity, isn't it? There's this trashy show on Netflix called The Circle. No? No, I know. I didn't watch it either. <clears throat> it's all about like a contest of how you present yourself through social media. And you can be your real self or you can kind of present, you know, uh, use fake pictures. The kids call it catfishing, right? And it's just a, a parable, I think, of how we present a fake identity. What photos will I show? Will I show just me or just me and my pet? Should I show the, my good side? Or, you know, all of a sudden we start creating something that we wish we were and wish other people thought we were. And worse yet, what if I put it all out there and nobody clicks like or friends me or follows me or subscribes, you know? L, longings. You know, for some, your identity is in your longings. Speaking of Netflix, you're going to think I just watched Netflix. Uh, <clears throat> when I saw Taylor Swift cry yesterday on Netflix because she wasn't nominated for a Grammy, I thought, well, that sums it up. Here's a, someone who could retire 10,000 times over before her 30th birthday, and she still has longings that are unmet. And some of you, it's always about tomorrow. Well... When I graduate, when I get promoted, when I get married, when I have kids, when we pay off the debt, when we renovate the house, when we get all our bills paid off, when we go on vacation, it's coming, it's almost there. And Ecclesiastes calls it a chasing after the wind. It's a wild goose chase with no goose at the end, right? Last one, S, sufferings. You know, here's the hardest one. Sufferings, we, we suffer emotionally. We suffer relationally. We suffer physically and spiritually and financially. We, we suffer. Sometimes we suffer because of our sin. Sometimes we suffer because of sins committed against us. Um, we can have our worst day be our defining day. Well, let me say this. You are not your best day. You are not your worst day. 
Your identity, your righteousness is in Christ, not in you. It's hard when people are suffering because sometimes they take on the suffering as their identity. I have cancer. I am divorced. I am an alcoholic. My spouse cheated on me. My kids betrayed me. My business partner robbed me. I was abused. I'm grieving. I want to be careful here because I've not suffered the way many of you have suffered. So I, I don't want to be callous, but I know this to be true. We cannot let our suffering become our identity. You may have cancer, but listen, you are not cancer. You may have been divorced, but your identity is not that of divorcee. I have a past that I have shared, uh, sometimes a current struggle with depression. My identity is not depressed. That is not who I am. My My identity is that God made me and Jesus saved me. These hard things partially explain you, but they do not define you, okay? Okay. You're not your worst day. You're not the worst thing that you've done. You're not the worst thing that others have done to you. You are what Jesus has done for you. So we need to understand a little bit of our identity crisis. Here's the problem with receiving our identity from an idol. Regardless of what it is, it's going to show cracks in time. It just will. I'm getting older. I'm not as beautiful as I once was. I put on 20 pounds. Our kids are leaving home. Our company is downsizing. Our church is shrinking. Uh, The housing market crashed. So when your identity idolatry fails, and it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when, you're going to look for someone to blame. And maybe you'll blame yourself. Your, your blame is going to go inward. I'm a failure. I'm dumb. I'm a loser. I, shouldn't, I should have been able to keep that job. I deserve this. I'm a terrible person. Maybe your blame will go outward to others. You failed me. You know, you cheated on me. You robbed me. You abandoned me. You betrayed me. You ruined my life. And if it's not self-blame or others' blame, I assure you, it's going to end up being God-blame. You said you loved me. You know, you said that you'd fix it. You said things wouldn't be like this. I read the scriptures. I prayed. You didn't come through like you promised you would. Have you ever been there? Are you there? You got two options, friend. You you can turn to Jesus and receive an eternal identity. He calls you chosen. He calls you a child of the king. He calls you his workmanship. That's his masterpiece. Whew, you're his masterpiece. Or your second option, I suppose, is just pick a new identity idol. I was married, but now I'm going to be a great swinging single, you know? Or I'm going to work my way up the company and be the boss. That'll be my identity. Or I'll give my life to political causes or, you know, that'll be my identity. And I've had the, the privilege, I, I guess you call it a privilege, of being with um, some people on their deathbed. Um, not as many as my friend Mike Dara, who's, who does that weekly, it seems. And um, you know what people don't ask for on their deathbed? Hey, could you bring me all those trophies I got? I want to see them one last time. 
Um, hey, could you print out my resume? I just, just read it to me one last time. Could you bring in my report card? I just want to see that awesome GPA. Could you, could you bring in a scale? I want to show you how much weight I lost. Could you, um, could you pull my car up front? Because I'd just like to sit it in it for a while and uh, show people my smoking hot Corvette. Because um, it defines me as a person. No. What they usually talk about comes down to two words. Jesus and people. That's all that ultimately matters. Amen? So much more that could be said. Let me pray for you. Father God, I, I pray for your people. I pray against the enemy, the accuser of the brethren. I pray that the lies we believe, God, I pray against those lies that some might even be believing right now. Jesus, you've come that we might be born again, that we would be new creations, new people, new identity, new life, new purpose. Lord, I pray for my friends here that they would all belong to Lord Jesus. And for those who know him, I pray they would live out of that identity in Christ, that they would realize that their identity is received, it's not achieved. It's about a God who made us and a son who saves us. And in light of that, that we can be students and singles and divorced and married and black and white and young. But our chief identity is in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Who am I? Who am I that the highest king would welcome me.